Truth Jihad Radio is 100% crowdfunded and therefore fearless and independent. Please help us stay that way. You can subscribe at my Substack. That's kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you could send a one-time PayPal donation to truthjihad at gmail.com. Welcome. This is the live broadcast of Truth Jihad Radio. Kevin Barrett waging the all-out struggle for truth. Currently broadcasting from Sadia, Morocco. And looking out at the world from my window, it looks a little different from here than it does from back in the belly of the beast where I escaped from last summer. So we have a great show coming up tonight. Second hour, Peter Koenig, the former World Bank economist, will come on to talk about the onrushing global techno-totalitarianism that certain leaps are cooking up with 5G moving to 6G, uh, various acronyms including UNCTAD and CBDCs and all sorts of other things that you'll find out what they mean when Peter comes on. Uh, so that should be a good segment. And now in the first segment, we're bringing on Ron Unz of the Unz Review, UNZ.com, the go-to website for real alternative media, especially for provocative and or uh, unusually sophisticated and reflective uh, considerations of the current state of affairs and uh, history, including revisionist history. And Ron Unz is up to some pretty serious revisionism this week. He has a great new article out called Gaza and the Anti-Semitism Hoax. And by anti-Semitism hoax, uh, Ron is suggesting that maybe the word anti-Semitism has not only outlived its usefulness, but it may never have had any usefulness to begin with. And I actually would tend to agree and suggest that we replace it with the term Jew hatred, because we can all agree to be against Jew hatred. We all wish the Jews would stop hating. Okay, well, that's my suggestion. I'm going to let Ron uh, explain uh, his his article, which is a, a really good uh, deep dive in typical American Protestant style. So, hey, welcome, Ron. It's good to have you back. Hey, great to be here. So this is a, a pretty hot button article, considering that of all of the unlovely terms that people are afraid of being tarred with these days, anti-Semitism seems to be pretty much the, the worst one, the one that nobody wants to ever be called. And I, I remember when I first started becoming notorious as a 9-11 truth professor, that this was a huge issue that you know, everybody was worried that, you know, even coming close to the issue of what really happened on 9-11 might somehow involve so-called anti-Semitism. So you're, you're taking this topic uh, on in a, a really direct and, and head-on kind of way. And uh, you're starting, of course, with the ongoing genocidal mass slaughter in Gaza, which just got revved up again today. Over 100 Palestinian civilians uh, slaughtered today by the Israelis after the expiration of the truce. I don't know. So maybe you can just go ahead and sort of uh, help us contextualize your piece. Sure. Well, I mean, obviously, the events in Gaza right now in the uh, Israel-Gaza conflict are really absolutely horrifying. I mean, probably... You know, over 15,000 Palestinian helpless civilians have already been killed with individual bodies recorded. And, you know, when you count the thousands and thousands buried under the rubble of the tens of thousands of destroyed buildings, of the death toll of Palestinians is probably well over 20,000 by now. I mean, it's the greatest televised slaughter of helpless civilians in the history of the world. 
And one reason I think so many people in the West are reluctant to focus on these events in the way they really should and, you know, really call a halt to what's going on with the Israeli attacks is, again, for fear of being accused of being anti-Semitic. Now, again, the term anti-Semitism is a very, very powerful term of abuse and attack in the Western world these days. I mean, our media has built it up over the last two or three generations into something that really can be used to attack even the most powerful individuals. I mean, for example, Elon Musk, the wealthiest man in the world, owner of Tesla, owner of Twitter, owner of uh, uh, the SpaceX. I mean, he basically was intimidated to back down on some of the statements he made when he was accused of being anti-Semitic. So, you know, when you're talking about the term anti-Semitic in the current world, I mean, in many ways you could describe anti-Semitism right now as interpreted by some of these people as being criticism of Israel for slaughtering helpless civilians, which is just an absurd use of that term. I mean, you can obviously say that, for example, many of the Palestinians, many of the relatives and friends of the tens of thousands of Palestinians who have died from Israeli bomb over the, are, are certainly very hostile towards the group that killed their friends and relatives. But, I mean, to have a special term, anti-Semitism, to describe it seems utterly absurd. So, in other words, many people, I think, now increase Gandistic, almost meaningless term. But I think probably most of those people still believe that it had tremendous validity in the past. In other words, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. It really meant something in the real world that had tremendous importance to society. And, you know, and in a sense, it's been going on momentum over those generations since. But what I really have done is to try to investigate the roots of that term and come to conclusions that really are very different than that sort of framework. A lot of my view of the term anti-Semitism and my deep suspicion of it actually began probably almost 20 years ago. Uh, now, I'm somebody who'd been very interested in the history of the Russian Revolution, the Soviet Union, the Bolsheviks, that sort of thing. And during my time in college and graduate school, even though it wasn't my area of major, I would probably read probably close to 100 books in that period. I mean, the leading text, the authoritative text on the history of Russian communism, the history of the Bolshevik Revolution. And I really felt that I knew that history quite, quite well. I mean, you know, certainly not somebody who was the equivalent of a professor of that subject, but certainly somebody who understood that history quite well. But then almost 20 years ago, somebody came across something on the Internet and brought it to my attention which just utterly shocked me. He basically came up with a quote, supposedly in a leading New York newspaper, that Jacob Schiff, one of the leading bankers, Jewish bankers on Wall Street for many decades, had actually been one of the leading funders of the Bolshevik Revolution. And that statement actually had been made by his own grandson, describing how Schiff had put $20 million into Russia 
to basically support the creation of the Bolshevik Revolution. Now, you know, at the time I heard that, I mean, that seemed utterly astonishing to me. In other words, the notion of a leading Jewish banker in the United States having funded the Bolshevik Revolution seemed utterly absurd. I mean, something that explosive could not possibly have been left out of all the texts, all the books I'd read on the subject. But as I started investigating it, I mean, the quote basically was a very clear, objective quote by a leading New York Times columnist in a leading New York newspaper of that era. It, the quote was made in 1949 by Jacob Schiff's own grandson. And it turns out when I investigated the subject, I mean, Schiff was somebody extremely hostile to the czarist regime because he felt it was very hostile and oppressive of the Jews of Russia. Schiff, when I checked, I mean, Schiff had certainly been one of the leading funders of the 1905 revolution to try to overturn the czarist system, which came close to succeeding. And there were certainly many, many other reputable sources emphasizing Schiff's extreme hostility to czarist Russia. So, in other words, it was something that seemed very plausible. When I checked further, I found that there were many other contemporaneous sources from the 1920s and 1930s emphasizing that Schiff indeed had been one of the leading allies of the Bolsheviks and had funded the Russian Revolution. So I, I stepped back a moment. I mean, at the time, for example, I was in college or grad school or years afterwards. You know, many of us sitting around the dinner table would discuss various historical issues and we would snicker at like the ridiculous insanity of anti-Semitism. I mean, the absurd theories produced by these ridiculous anti-Semites and probably the most ridiculous example any of us could ever cite was the notion that promoted by some of the more extreme anti-Semites that the international Jewish bankers had created the world communist movement. That was utterly absurd. But, I mean, based on this evidence, that essentially is true. I mean, $20 million a 100 years ago more than 100 years ago, was the equivalent of $2 billion in the present day. And I mean, basically, without $2 billion of funding going to all of these Russian revolutionaries coming from Jacob Schiff and probably some of the other Jewish bankers who were friends of his on Wall Street, it's very unlikely that the Bolshevik revolution would have succeeded or any of these other revolutions would have succeeded in Russia. So we have basically an historical event of the greatest possible magnitude that had been utterly concealed in all of the many, many dozens or even scores of mainstream texts I'd read on the history of the Russian Revolution. I mean, and then when I checked into it, take, for example, the Black Book of Communism. It runs 800 pages. The English edition was written published by Harvard University. It's an extremely comprehensive, authoritative account of communism in the Soviet Union and all of these other countries around the world that followed Soviet communism, China and all of these countries. And when I checked, for example, the index, it runs 35 pages. It mentions all of these obscure, totally obscure figures among the Bolsheviks or among the communist movement or in all these other countries. And it doesn't include any entry for Jacob Schiff, 
who was the figure, according to all contemporaneous sources, who provided the funding that created the Bolshevik Revolution and the Russian Revolution. I mean, he was never mentioned, even though, I mean, all if you read any of the standard texts, it's admitted that he was the leading funder of the 1905 revolution to overthrow the czarist regime. And, you know, the, that revolution certainly was covered in the Black Book of Communism extensively, but Jacob Schiff's name was never mentioned. And the other Jewish bankers who were involved in supporting and funding the Soviet system and the Bolshevik Revolution also were left out of that text. So, you know, when you have the most insane example of ridiculous anti-Semitism that you've ridiculed for decades and you discover that it's essentially true. I mean, it certainly makes you call into question your beliefs of that basic idea. And so the next thing I noticed was as I started reading through some of these texts describing the widespread beliefs in the 1920s and 1930s that Jacob Schiff and the other Jewish bankers were behind the Bolshevik Revolution and communism, I noticed a lot of discussion similarly in many of these texts, denouncing Henry Ford for having been a ridiculous anti-Semite who published a, a book called uh, The International Jew, which again, you know, is well sometimes mentioned in some of my textbooks as the sort of insane anti-Semitism that had been prevalent in the 1900s and 1910s. In certain circles, including, for example, you know, somebody as high ranking as Henry Ford, one of the richest men in the world. And so I decided, you know, I'll take a look at that text. And it turns out you can just click a, a couple of buttons on Amazon and download uh, uh, basically and buy a copy of the text. So I ended up reading through it. Now, Henry Ford, again, was one of the wealthiest men in the United States, founder, really, of Ford Motor Company created America's industrial base, and by doubling the wages of the workers at his company, he basically created the American middle class. What's also interesting is that even though Ford was really quite conservative and he was generally quite hostile to the Bolshevik Revolution, he was considered his achievement in industrial development and raising up ordinary American workers, making them prosperous was considered such a tremendous revolutionary step forward that he was considered one of the world's greatest revolutionary heroes by Lenin and the Bolsheviks. I mean, it's astonishing. The, Bol the Bolsheviks actually named their industrial policy after they seized power in Russia. They called it Fordism, named after Henry Ford, even though he was much more of a conservative and opposed to communism. And again, you know, you really, some of these things have been lost in the history books, but they're really quite fascinating at the time. So, you know, I sort of assumed that when I read something as notorious as the International Jew by Henry Ford, as published in his uh, newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, which he distributed nationally, you know, it would be a screed that would be so ridiculous and extreme that I would be, probably give up after a dozen pages. But what I actually discovered in reading it was something entirely different. Now, Henry Ford really had, you know, obviously obtained a great deal of wealth. And what he basically said at the beginning of his of the book that he collected was that he'd become increasingly concerned in the 1900s and 1910s 
that issues of Jewish malfeasance or Jewish misbehavior in the United States or even Jewish criminality were being increasingly ignored by the mainstream media because it was increasingly fearful of Jewish retaliation through advertising boycotts or other basically pressure that were put on these mainstream publications. So whereas these sorts of stories of ordinary crime or corruption or malfeasance, if they involved any other group in American society, would naturally be covered by the newspapers and magazines, by the mainstream media. In the case of Jews, there was a tremendous fear of raising these issues. So they basically were excluded. Their misbehavior was excluded. And Ford decided to cover those stories in his own publication that he was funding out of his own pocket. So, I mean, when you read through, for example, The International Jew by Henry Ford, the vast majority of the material is very humdrum mainstream incidents of crime or corruption or misbehavior or political pressure put on leading figures, the sort that would be covered in, you'd expect to be covered in all the regular newspapers and magazines. But because of the fear of Jewish retaliation, they were ignored and was up to Henry Ford to cover them. Ford emphasized that it was certainly not in the interests of ordinary Jewish Americans that this misbehavior took place, that some of the leaders of the Jewish community behaved in this sort of way, and that it was harmful for Jews, it was harmful for the rest of the United States, and it was important that members of the Jewish community call out their own leaders who were basically giving them a bad reputation in this sort of way. And in fact, a couple of times in some of the instances in his uh, some of the columns that were published in his newspaper, he would cite the fact that, for example, somebody describing himself as a proud Jewish American would write for it a letter praising his series. And in fact, sometimes including a check buying subscriptions to his newspaper for some of the other members of his community. And then in some cases, other publications in the United States, some of the leading publications like the Atlantic Monthly or Century Magazine, were so shamed by the fact that Ford's newspaper was covering these things that they ignored, they would sometimes now begin to run articles along the same lines. So again, you know, when you look at, for example, American society today, in the last 10 or 20 years, there's been, there have been many cases where individual journalists or individual publications have taken a very similar line. They have said, we feel that the mainstream media is refusing to report instances of Jewish or Israeli misbehavior for fear of pressure, for fear of retaliation from Jewish activists or the ADL or some of these other organizations, but it's important to speak out. We have to speak out on these issues. And Ford, in many respects, was doing exactly the same thing over 100 years ago. So it was shocking to me that whereas I'd always read in my history books that Ford's International Jew was filled with the most insane sort of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, utterly ridiculous nonsense, I found that the bulk of it was extremely straightforward investigative journalism of the sort that should have been covered by the mainstream media, but was being ignored because of fear of retaliation and pressure from the ADL, which had been founded only a few years earlier, or from organized Jewish boycotts of the Jewish community. 
So, you know, again, when I came across the Jacob Schiff example and then the Henry Ford International Jew example, that really shocked me. And I really began to wonder at what point had anti-Semitism actually been a real thing rather than a phantom produced by dishonest journalism. How how far back do you have to go to find the Well, that's the interesting thing. What I decided to do was I said to myself, well, if you look at the history of anti-Semitism, given the fact that Jews were so heavily involved in the leadership of the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, you could easily imagine a tremendous backlash against Jews in other countries, since, again, Jews in other countries many times then became the leading Bolsheviks. They staged an attempted revolution in Hungary, in parts of Germany. They were the core of the American Communist Party in the United States. So in the aftermath of the Bolshevik Revolution, you could certainly imagine a tremendous rise in what might be considered anti-Semitism as a consequence of these other countries. So I decided to say, well, let's look at the worst and most serious examples of anti-Semitism prior to the Bolshevik Revolution, prior to the First World War. And the examples that come to the forefront are obviously the notorious example of the Dreyfus affair, Alfred Dreyfus, a Jewish military officer in France who was wrongly accused of being a foreign spy, convicted and sentenced to harsh imprisonment. Or, for example, the Leo Frank case in the United States or the case of the horrific examples of Russian anti-Semitism under the Tsar. Those are probably the three most extreme examples you can point to in the 19th century. And prior to the 19th century, really, Jews had generally not had citizenship in most of these countries. So anti-Semitism was a very different thing since Jews were then classified as foreigners, as sojourners in the country. And it turns out a a, uh, really very leading scholar named Albert Lindemann had written two extensive volumes, very scholarly volumes published by Cambridge University Press on the history of 19th century anti-Semitism in all of these countries, focusing especially on those three examples, the most extreme examples you can think of. I mean, the Dreyfus Fair is a watchword. For historic anti-Semitism, and it actually inspired the creation of the Zionist movement. Theodore Herzl claimed that the horrific anti-Semitism he saw with his own eyes in Paris during the Dreyfus Affair was the reason he decided Zionism was necessary and launched the movement. The Leo Frank case in the United States with Leo Frank, a factory owner, convicted of murdering and raping one of his young employees, That was the incident that created the ADL in the United States, a very powerful and influential Jewish organization. And the which is probably monitoring this radio show. Oh, exactly. And then the examples of anti-Semitism in the case of Russia, of Tsarist Russia, were obviously what caused people like Jacob Schiff to support the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks and caused the Bolshevik Revolution to take place with the funding they supplied. So, I mean, those were not only three of the most famous anti-Semitic cases in my introductory history textbooks, but they basically caused the creation of the Zionist movement, of the ADL, and the funding that led to the creation of Russian Bolshevism, the Bolshevik Revolution. So, I mean, those are some of the most extreme and important anti-Semitic cases you can possibly find. And as I started going through the 900 pages of scholarship 
in Lindemann's text, I was astonished by what I discovered. For example, there really was no example, no clear case of anti-Semitism involved in the Dreyfus affair. There's not the slightest evidence Dreyfus was originally accused and arrested with his Jew, Jewish background having anything to do with it. He basically, there was certainly some strong evidence that he was a spy. I mean, the evidence ended up being false and he ultimately was pardoned and acquitted. But I mean, there was not the slightest evidence that the suspicion came to him on the grounds that he was Jewish. Now, Dreyfus himself was really a rather unpleasant fellow. He came from a very wealthy family and he was very arrogant and hostile towards some of the other officers that he was working with. So, you know, certainly some of his personal behavior or the lack of friends he had among his brother officers may have certainly helped them to believe that he was a German spy. But there's no evidence whatsoever it had anything to do with his Jewish background. And in fact, if anything, some, there's some evidence that the suspicion came to him more because his family originally came from Germany from a part of, from the Alsace-Lorraine area, which was currently owned by Germany, rather than anything to do with his Jewish background. In fact, interestingly enough, when you check, for example, uh, Al, uh, uh, when you check Theodore Herzl's own diary in his private writings, he actually believed that Dreyfus was guilty at the time. When Dreyfus was put on trial, he believed that Dreyfus was a spy who was correctly accused of being a spy and correctly convicted. Now, what then happened is after Dreyfus was convicted, his brother and other members of the very wealthy Jewish community ended up doing everything they could to have him freed. And in fact, there's quite a lot of evidence that they concocted forged evidence to try to free Dreyfus, crudely forged evidence. And they offered huge bribes to military officials and politicians to try to get Dreyfus freed. Those are obviously things that made more and more people, as word of them got around, more and more people very suspicious that Dreyfus was actually guilty. And it also caused a backlash against Dreyfus's wealthy family and other members of the Jewish community because they were believed to try to free a foreign spy, a guilty foreign spy, using bribery and corruption. That also related to some of the recent events in France, which had captured the headlines. Very, very few Frenchmen were Jewish at the time, probably about one in a thousand, point one percent of the population. But just a few years earlier, there had been some gigantic financial corruption scandals in which a group of mostly Jewish participants had inflated stock prices, caused a lot of investors to lose all of their money. And those, the corrupt individuals behind the scandal, had managed to avoid punishment through political influence, corruption, and bribery. So, in other words, there was a widespread suspicion that Dreyfus would escape his punishment using the same corrupt means that these other Jewish individuals a few years earlier had escaped punishment for their stock fraud. And, you know, when you think, for example, of recent events in the United States, I mean, there have been awful lot of major corruption scandals involving Jewish participants. And you could certainly imagine under normal circumstances, there would be a lot of suspicion gained of, of Jewish individuals over exactly that sort of reason. So at least at first, 
there was no evidence that Dreyfus was suspected on the grounds that he was Jewish. And it was only afterwards when corrupt means were meant were used to try to free him from his prison uh, exile and punishment that really there was a backlash against the Jewish community in France. Yeah, of course, that, that's and such Dre- a different different story than what I got when I was getting an MA in French literature, where the Dreyfus affair is such a plays a huge role. As you know, various, various uh, famous French writers were involved on one side or the other of that querelle. Uh, and of course, the the version that I got as a, a master's MA student in French literature was that, oh, there is this thing, this pernicious thing called anti-Semitism that's just out there and is so powerful. And that, and so we it was contextualized in that manner is that we were taking for granted that this was an example of the pervasiveness of anti-Semitism in that time and place. Oh, exactly. I mean, it's one of the most famous cases of anti-Semitism in the history of the world. I mean, the Dreyfus affair was mentioned in all my history textbooks in exactly the way you're describing it. And again, to read this very scholarly detailed text by a leading mainstream academic published by Cambridge University Press that laid out the overwhelming evidence that the story was entirely misleading. In other words, it was built up afterwards by the media. Now, you know, the truth is Dreyfus probably was innocent. In other words, Dreyfus had been falsely accused by some of the individuals involved in the actual spy ring. So the fact that Dreyfus was innocent is certainly correct. And I mean, that part of it is correct. But Dreyfus was not accused on the grounds that he was Jewish. That only came afterwards when his brother and when other members of the Jewish community were trying to use corrupt means, bribery, to free him from prison. And so, again, you know, the actual story is very different than that. And when you find that one of the most famous instances of anti-Semitism in the history of the world was basically concocted by the media, it again makes you very suspicious. And that the second case that was covered by Lindemann's text was even worse than that. And that's the Leo Frank case in 1913 Atlanta. Leo Frank was a wealthy factory owner from New York who was living in Atlanta. And he was actually one of the most prominent Jews in the South because he was president of the B'nai B'rith, of the Atlanta chapter of B'nai B'rith, which was the largest Jewish chapter of that fraternal organization in the entire South. So he was probably one of the three or four most highly regarded influential Jewish Southerners at the time. I mean, the South didn't have a large population, but, you know, it had a noticeable Jewish population. And suddenly Leo Frank was accused of raping and murdering one of his own factory employees, a 13-year-old girl named Mary Fagan. I mean, at first, when the girl's body, raped and murdered body, was found in the cellar, I mean, there was obviously no suspicion whatsoever attendant towards Leo Frank, the owner, the manager of the factory. And at first, in fact, there was some suspicion towards one of the black employees with some fabricated evidence that was presented seeming to implicate that black employee. But, I mean, he had an alibi and it was very clear that it wasn't him. And then people, then the police started going through the details of the case. I mean, it certainly was true that Leo Frank was the last individual known to have seen the girl because she would, she'd been called to his office on a weekend when nobody else was around to collect her paycheck. And on a number of occasions, she'd actually told her friends 
that Leo Frank had basically behaved very improperly towards her. I mean, what would currently be considered sexual harassment. A number of other member girl employees in the factory then came forward and said very clearly that Leo Frank had behaved to many of them in the same way and also towards that particular girl. Other evidence came forward. For example, Leo Frank refused to speak to the police. He refused to allow himself to be interviewed by the police. And then finally, when he was forced to be interviewed by the police, he seemed to act in a very suspicious sort of manner. I mean, a very strange and suspicious sort of manner. So even though at first there was no suspicion attended to him, with these other factors coming around, the police started suspecting that possibly he might have been the person involved. Also, after he was then arrested, and brought into jail. His wife refused to visit him for the first couple of weeks in jail, which at the time was considered a very strange sort of behavior. And then afterwards, one of his household employees, a maid who worked in the house, told the police that she'd overheard a conversation in which Leo Frank admitted to having raped and murdered the girl to his own wife. And that's obviously the reason that the wife refused to visit him for the first couple of weeks. So, I mean, with all of this evidence, you know, a lot of other evidence then came out. Then finally, one of the black employees, a janitor, came forward and said that he actually had seen Leo Frank with the body and that Leo Frank then had offered him a very large amount of money for the time if he would help cover up what had happened. And so then he and Frank basically took the body down to the cellar and, uh, you know, basically he assisted Frank in trying to cover up the case. Then Frank hired, obviously, as Frank was brought to trial, he hired some of the best and most expensive lawyers in the South. I mean, a huge amount of money for that time was spent on him. The equivalent in present-day terms of $25 million, it was the most expensive felony trial, in a murder trial in American history. Far more money was spent than, for example, had been spent recently in the O.J. Simpson case relative to the value of the dollars back then. And a huge amount of that money was spent on bribery and corruption as later revealed in the memoirs and the diaries of some of the individuals who were involved in supporting Frank and raising funding for him. I mean, basically, it was clearly a sort of cover-up. And then finally, when trial came forth, everybody by that point agreed that there were only two possible guilty parties involved. It was either Frank the white factory, the affluent white factory owner, or the black individual who said that he'd helped Frank cover up the case, who was a semi-literate black janitor. I mean, somebody basically considered in a very low light in the South in that period. Frank's uh, lawyers then, again, the best lawyers that money could buy in the South, then put that black janitor on the stand for 12 hours, I mean, incredibly harsh cross-examination, using the most extreme racial rhetoric you can possibly imagine. I mean, describing the man as a bestial black, the sort of person who naturally was the sort of individual who would rape and murder a young white girl. I mean, you know, again, exactly what you'd expect in the old south of Atlanta in that period. I mean, and that's, of course, what the, what the ADL pretends to be against. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it was, you know, again, very, very harsh rhetoric because basically they were trying to play on the emotions and the racist sentiment of the all-white jury. 
But despite 12 hours of the most rigorous cross-examination, that black janitor stood up under it, never changed his story, and came across as very convincing. Meanwhile, Frank himself refused to testify at the trial, which obviously made the jurors very suspicious of what was going on. And as a result, when we're talking about, and uh, interestingly enough, Frank's Jewish background almost never came up during the trial, except with the defense attorneys raising it. They basically emphasized that since Frank was Jewish, it was impossible for a Jew like that to have committed such a bestial offense. In other words, Jews at that time were a very affluent, well-integrated part of Atlanta society. And obviously, the population of Atlanta was quite religious. They believed in the Bible. They knew, you know, the Old Testament. And so for that reason, it was Frank's defense lawyers that while playing up the bestial nature of black rapists and killers, you know, to try to break down that guy on the stand, at the same time, were emphasizing that Frank being Jewish could not possibly have committed such a horrific offense. And in fact, three of the grand jurors who ended up indicting Frank were themselves Jewish, so there was not the slightest evidence of any sort of anti-Semitism at the time. It was only well, they, they must have been self-hating Jews, Ron. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I mean, it was it just again, you know, this, the case I'd read about in my introductory history books, the famous Leo Frank case, was exactly the opposite of reality. Frank, then the jurors saw through what was going on. In fact, the interesting thing about it is, was emphasized in uh, the in the books I read on the case. What took place with the Leo Frank case was actually a landmark of black rights in the United States. It was the first time in American history, in the American South, when a black had been allowed to testify against a white. I mean, again, we're talking about a very racially harsh Southern society, the Old South, and it was the sort of thing, since the only witness against Leo Frank was that black janitor. And since it was such a horrific case, the rape and murder of a 13-year-old girl the white Southern uh, 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 prosecutor, uh, they were willing to put a black on the stand against a white, successful white businessman, and his testimony was accepted. Furthermore, when the New York Times covered the case, they covered the case in exhaustive detail because of the shocking nature of what was going on. And that one black janitor received more coverage in the New York Times in his statements and his name, than any other black figure in all of American history. In fact, more coverage was given to him in the New York Times than uh, than uh, Washington, uh, than uh, 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 you know, the um, uh, you know the famous uh, you know who I'm talking about yeah. uh, the. Uh, George Washington Carver. Uh, George, right, uh, uh, right. Uh, uh, George, uh, then George Washington Carver, then, um, then uh, basically all the other leading figures in Black history combined. Then you know this one Black janitor. I mean, again, you give an enormous coverage in the New York Times. Then after the trial was over, again with massive funding and massive support, an entire effort was set up throughout the United States with Jewish groups coming together to try to save Frank from the hangman. He'd been basically sentenced to death by the white jury. And a huge amount of money, again, was spent at the time. Uh, uh, 
on 13 separate appeals that were filed, including two appeals to the U.S. Supreme Court. In other words, every possible effort was made to try to save Frank's life and get Frank's sentence commuted. And in fact, because of the influence of the Jewish community and Albert Lasker, who was the dominant figure in American advertising, virtually all the publications around the United States immediately shifted to supporting Frank's case and declaring Frank to be innocent, which is why it ended up becoming part of the history books in the United States. In other words, you know, anybody who reads casual history texts are always told that Frank was innocent, that Frank was obviously railroaded out of anti-Semitism, and that, you know, it was basically a case almost of, you know, the early Ku Klux Klan or something like that, even though it had not been formed at the time. So, you know, again, we're talking about a massive effort made by Jews around the United States, closing ranks and raising huge sums of money to try to save a convicted rapist and murderer of a 13-year-old girl. Now, Ron, why do you think they did that? Why why would wealthy, powerful Jewish individuals, people uh, running much of the media and so on, why why would they even want to save Leo Frank? It's an interesting situation. Now, what's particularly interesting is that when you read some of the memoirs or diaries of some of these people involved, they actually seem to think that Frank was probably guilty. In fact, uh, one of them... Let's say I think it was Albert Lasker when he met Frank in his jail cell afterwards in his private memoirs said, you know, Frank seemed like totally, you know, evil sort of person. I mean, basically, he hoped that if he managed to save Frank's life, then Frank would trip and kill himself or, you know, die in some horrible way afterwards. But <laughs> I mean, the truth is, you know, again, we're talking about 100 years ago and traditionally in Jewish culture, there'd been the notion of Jews closing ranks against any possible prosecution or punishment from the larger Gentile society. In other words, it was widely described in books by leading scholars at the time. I mean, it's something that happened. And so, you know, I think a certain residue of that was still very present at the time. And it was simply felt outrageous that Gentile society would execute one of the most prominent Jewish figures in the South, the president of the Atlanta B'nai B'rith Fraternal Organization, simply on grounds that he was guilty. And so, you know, again, a tremendous effort was made. Now, what, what may very well happen is that some of the people involved in the effort, as I've said from memoirs and accounts, clearly recognized that Frank was probably guilty. However, many others then were brought in probably believing Frank was innocent and unjustly punished. In fact, they ended up recruiting quite a lot of very prominent Gentile figures to endorse a pardon for Frank, including, for example, oh, um, uh, let's see, uh, 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 let's see, Jane Addams, the, uh, you know, the very noted feminist, uh, you know, uh, suffragette campaigner. Henry Ford actually endorsed uh, which is ironic in terms of light of his alleged anti-Semitism, endorsed Frank's <laughs> she, she, Shades of Elon uh, Musk going to yeah, Jerusalem exactly. to kiss BB's and, ring. And, and Thomas Edison. In fact, I've, I've sometimes suspected that when Henry Ford then later discovered that Leo Frank had actually been guilty, the fact that he'd been tricked into endorsing Leo Frank's pardon 
may have had something to do with his increasing suspicion of the Jewish community. So in other words, that might have been one of the hidden factors since it happened basically seven or eight years before Henry Ford started publishing The International Jew and, you know, set up the Dearborn Independence. So it may have been one of the early sort of uh, touchstones on the road to, you know, his revising his opinion of the Jewish community. So, you know, again, all of these figures then basically mobilized to try to save Frank's life. And then finally, despite overwhelming hostility and a feeling of Frank being guilty and deserving the just punishment, after 13 separate appeals, including to the Supreme Court, had failed, it turns out the governor of the state of Georgia, who was secretly a business partner of one of Frank's leading attorneys, ended up pardoning Frank right before leaving office. And given the amount of money floating around and the massive bribes being offered, it was very widely suspected that the governor had been bribed to pardon Frank. And then after that happened, a few weeks later, a group of leading citizens in Atlanta actually organized themselves. They stormed the prison farm that was where Frank was held, and they actually lynched Frank. So Frank became the first and only classic lynching victim who was Jewish in all of American history. Something like 3,000 individuals, mostly black, but with about a third of them white, had been lynched over the first hundred years of, uh, you know, of the southern history. And Frank was the only individual among all of them who was lynched, who was Jewish, and Frank was very obviously guilty and had been sentenced to death by by a jury after undergoing after having the best defense that money could buy with the longest trial in modern southern history so you know under those circumstances what's really shocking is that when you read stories of lynchings in american history and standard textbooks leo frank is probably the single individual named individual who's described as having been lynched in American history, certainly the most prominent lynching case. And he may have received more media attention for his lynching and for his trial than possibly all 3,000 other lynching victims combined. Most of them were given a single sentence in a local newspaper. Nobody even heard of their names afterwards. And so, you know, what it really shows is that when you have tremendous media power, you can very easily distort the reality of events. And so, you know, again, and, and so Leo Frank becomes anecdotal evidence in the minds of, of the masses that Jews were lynching victims alongside blacks, exactly. which is the way people think of things. Exactly. 3,000 lynching victims, one of them, one of 3,000 who is Jewish, and he's the most famous in the history books. And so, again, the two most famous examples of anti-Semitism, as I started going through and investigating them, were totally different than what I'd assumed from my history books. And take the third example, Tsarist Russia. Now, you know, Tsarist Russia certainly, you could argue, oppressed its Jewish population, but it's unclear whether the oppression was nearly as bad as the oppression for the bulk of the Russian population. The Russian population consisted almost entirely of serfs who were really the equivalent of slaves who could be bought and sold on their own land. Jews were never serfs. Jews were far wealthier and more affluent than the rest of the population. It's certainly true that during the course of the 19th century, there had been a tremendous decline in Jewish financial well-being 
Jews were much worse off towards the end of that period than towards the beginning. But that was largely because of the tremendous growth of the Jewish population. The Jewish population in Russian Empire had increased by a factor of 10 during that period. Jews had very large families. And with the decline of infant mortality, more and more of them lived. I mean, for example, I, I think uh, Ezra, uh, uh, Chaim Weizmann, you know, the, one of the key figures in the, Zion, in the Zionist movement, had 10 brothers and sisters. So in other words... When in the course of the 19th century, there'd been a gigantic rise in the Jewish population and Jews were unwilling to work, to move into primary producer roles, to work in factories or to work in agriculture. Their traditional middlemen occupations, including, for example, selling liquor and engaging in usury, which, you know, were obviously things that, you know, were sometimes harmful to the Slavic population. Don't forget prostitution and white slavery. Oh, sure. Sure, exactly. I mean, so those sorts of, you know, sometimes parasitic activities, I mean, the market niche for them was limited. And with the Jewish population increasing by a factor of 10 during that period, you know, Jews simply had much more competition. And take, for example, most of the history textbooks have always defined the Russians as confining Jews to the pale of settlement, as if Jews were imprisoned. Now, the thing is, the pale of settlement was the traditional Jewish homeland. In Russia, it consisted of the Ukraine, areas of Poland, that sort of region. And it was as large as Spain and France combined. So, you know, we're talking about Jews being confined in most cases to a gigantic area of land, while the individual Slavic peasants were mostly serfs confined to their own farms. In other words, they couldn't walk more than they couldn't go and seek a job a mile, two miles from where they were. So in other words, it was the Slavic peasants who were far more oppressed by the Russian regime. And then afterwards, you know, as Jews became more and more hostile to the Russian government, they were involved in more and more revolutionary activities, including, for example, the assassination of a czar, the assassination of several leading cabinet members, the assassinate cabinet ministers, the assassination of very large numbers of government officials and, you know, involved in rampant terrorism. So, you know, certainly in a situation where Jews were involved in assassination of top government officials and also involved as the leaders of the 1905 revolution to try to overthrow the Tsarist government, you know, there certainly was a crackdown on the Jewish population. And as a result, you know, millions of Jews then moved over, emigrated overseas to the United States, to France, to Canada, to other countries around the world. But again, the story is much less one-sided than you would think by reading the history books. And, you know, again, the analogy I use is in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks or in the 1990s, you know, if the tiny Muslim population in the United States had been involved in the assassination of an American president, the assassination of several top cabinet members, dozens and dozens of assassinations of American appointed and elected officials. I mean, there certainly would have been a gigantic backlash against the Muslim population. And it would have encountered all sorts of difficulties. And so, you know, when you have these things taking place in Russia, with Jews involved in all of these assassination of top government officials, I mean, to call the backlash against Jews anti-Semitism is really ridiculous. So, you know, a time gone by when I've read, for example, 
Solzhenitsyn's important book, 200 Years Together, on the difficult relationship between Russians and Jews over a 200-year period, and many of the other books that have covered this in great detail, you can see the notion of anti-Semitism in any reasonable sense of the word, even in Russia, was very, very different than most people would possibly think. And, you know, so in other words, if the most extreme classic cases of anti-Semitism are very different than what they're portrayed as being, you really have to ask yourself. And by the way, Lindemann's book also covered many, many numerous smaller examples in other countries, Germany, other parts of France, Italy, Hungary, so many of these other cases. And I mean, they basically had just as little reality as these classic cases of the Dreyfus affair, the Leo Frank case, and Russian czarist oppression of Jews. So, you know, you really have to ask yourself if if what we call anti-Semitism doesn't really have much plausible meaning in today's America, if it didn't seem to have much in the recent past, and if you find out the classic cases of the 19th century and early 20th century that were always described in our history textbooks are very different than what they seem, you know, you really have to admit that what you're talking about is more of a concocted artificial phantom used to intimidate people who otherwise might criticize Jewish behavior. And I mean, it's something that, you know, I, I think is more of a weaponized tool that never had in reality than something that, you know, is meaningful in the real world. Right. And, and if we go back even further uh, in history, before the periods that you're talking about that Lindemann writes about, I think it becomes even more clear that what we're really dealing with is that the Jewish community has held itself together through types of ethnocentrism, uh, nepotism, and various kinds of uh, economic practices and so on, cultural practices, uh, including setting itself very strongly apart from other communities and vilifying them, frankly. That, in fact, the roots of the conflict between Jewish communities and uh, goys really uh, are more deeper, uh, deeply rooted in the Jewish community's soil than in those of the Goys, and that all of these large numbers of conflicts throughout history have been mainly produced by Jewish behavior, not by some mindless hatred of Jews on the part of non-Jews. Oh, exactly. I mean, you know, it's the old joke people bring up that, you know, if you're somebody, if you're not drunk and you go into a bar and you're thrown out of that bar because you're drunk, you know, you know you're not drunk, so you're not drunk. And the bar was mistaken. But if you're thrown out of 110 separate bars, it probably means that the fault is yours rather than each of those 110 separate bars. I mean, the Jewish religion, you know, with the Talmud and to some extent the Old Testament, um, obviously it serves as a very powerful means of Jewish cohesion. And such cohesion has been very useful to the Jewish community and integral to much Jewish success but it often then causes a backlash among the non-Jewish community that Jews are living among. And that obviously led to these conflicts in all these different eras. Now, in the case of, for example, these particular cases... Hey, we only have, have less than a minute left, so keep Oh, sure. Okay. Well, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, it's something, when we look at the current world today, we have to basically try to de-weaponize the term anti-Semitism and recognize that's a meaningless propagandistic term 
and that anybody uses it is simply admitting that they have no logical defense against the charges made against them. And that's what I've been trying to tell the ADL for about 15 years now. Well, thank you so much, Ron Unz, for filling in some important details about the history of this specious concept of anti-Semitism. It's a great addition to your American Pravda series, which I think is really the crown jewel of the alternative media these days. So keep up the fantastic work, and God bless. That's Ron Unz, back in the second hour with... Uh, a consideration of the onrushing dystopia uh, with Peter Koenig. Stick around.